It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. One man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once upon a time, I reviewed each of the works of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. But is a wheel it all goes round again and I'm back once more this time to examine each of the endings to the works of Stephen King to see whether or not Stephen King has uh, deserved this reputation that he seems to have about whether or not he can uh, successfully end his stories so I've been on a deep dive over the last couple years um, being that specific around this particular topic um, and it's a Christmas miracle everyone it's a Christmas miracle here I am uh, just in time for Christmas to bring you the appropriately named Holly so I'm going to be reviewing Holly today I'm going to get right into it I hope that everyone has had a really good fall this year um, you know, I, I put out um, some some episodes during the summer, and I didn't want uh, the, the the year to close out without me at least doing one episode. I definitely needed to review Holly. I feel bad because I I read it, I devoured it. You know, when it came out in September, and I've just been sitting on this review. I've been meaning to to get to it for a while, but life is pretty busy. I haven't had a chance. But like I said, I wanted to to get to it, uh, and. If, if we're all, uh, you know, on, on the nice list, uh, we might have another episode coming at you before the end of 2023. So fingers crossed on that. Okay, so let's talk about Holly. So again, in, in order for me to really um, set the stage for for this i I think that's important to to always take the moment and appreciate that feeling that you get that's so singular in nature there's really no feeling in it like you know in in the world it's it's getting a new stephen king book so i had amazon uh deliver it to me to to my house i had a long night at work and i came home and it was waiting there for me and there's nothing like it. Sitting down, opening up uh, the you know the the book, and then just diving in to, to 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 see where the story is going to take you. And a story involving you know a character that we have all come to 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 know and love over the last few years. So it was an additional treat. It wasn't just a a, a new story with new characters. It was a new story with an established character, and. If you remember back during my review of Needful Things, one of the things I had lamented was the fact that Needful Things had Sheriff Alan Pangborn returning after first um, seeing him be a part of the Dark Half. And with the conclusion of that character um, rolling out in the pages of Needful Things, at least in terms of a, a, an active character in the Stephen King lore, we, we missed out on this idea of him being, you know, a small town sheriff in a town where supernatural oddities would pop up and having him be this um, reoccurring character at the center of, of supernatural events in which he would have to investigate, solve and save the day. And we never got that with Alan, but we do get it with Holly. And that's really cool. I'm really happy to see that. So that that tickles that 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 uh, that particular fancy. And but right away, right away in the book, what struck me is that King does what he does best. 
He sets a scene, he places us firmly in a setting, and lets us see through the eyes of a character to firmly anchor us in that moment. And after establishing our setting, this one of Sugar Heights, Ridge Road, and Deerfield Park, he introduces us to a character jogging into our story and running headlong into his death. This night in October is warm for the time of year, but a fine drizzle has kept all but a single dedicated runner inside. That would be George Castro, who has a gig teaching creative writing and Latin American lit at the college. Despite his specialty, he's an American born and bred. George likes to tell people he's as American as Pai de Manzana. He turned 40 in July and can no longer kid himself that he is still the young lion who had momentarily, who had a momentary bestseller success with his first novel. 40 is when you have to stop kidding yourself that you're still a young anything. If you don't, if you, if you subscribe to such self-actualizing bullshit as 40 is the new 25, you're going to find yourself starting to slide. Just a little at first, but then a little more, and all at once you're in 50 with a belly poking out of your belt buckle and cholesterol busters in the medicine cabinet. At 20, the body forgives. At 40, forgiveness is provisional at best. George Castro doesn't want to turn 50 and discover he's become just another American man slob. You have to start taking care of yourself when you're 40. You have to maintain the machinery because there's no trade-in option. So George drinks uh, orange juice in the morning, potassium, followed most days by oatmeal, antioxidants, and keeps red meat to once a week. When he wants a snack, he's apt to open a can of sardines. They're rich in omegas-3, also tasty. He does simple exercises in the morning and runs in the evening, not overdoing it, but aerating those 40-year-old lungs and giving his 40-year-old heart a chance to strut its stuff. George wants to look and feel 40 when he gets to 50, but fate is a joker. George Castro isn't even going to see 41. Well, look it. I've been joined by somebody. Well, hello there. Hi. What are you up to? Uh, plugging my phone in. And? Uh. What are you doing downstairs right now? I'm making cookies. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you Yay. are. Nice, yummy cookies. All right, say, Martha. say, uh. Merry Christmas. Oh, look at you. And say, um, may you have long days and pleasant nights. May you have long <laughs> days. Why? Just because. Say, may you have long days. No. Why? Why? Because that's what, it's a Stephen King thing. Say, may you have long days. May you have long days. And pleasant nights. And pleasant nights. Bye. I'm up to go make cookies. Thanks, kid. It's crazy. It's crazy. Do you remember, long-time listeners, do you remember when the early days of the Stephen King cast, when it would just be, you would hear my... Furry co-hosts, you know, clip-clocking and, and snorting and, and making noise. And then um, as the years progressed, you'd, you'd hear her who just popped in, um, maybe in the background crying or something. Now she's coming in and just flat out talking to all of you. It's This year will be the uh, the 10th year anniversary of the Stephen King cast. We'll, we'll be doing some stuff over the summer, but... Um, with what just happened, that that really just, ooh, just makes time uh, so real. Anyway, back to back to the the podcast. So King does not waste any time. As soon as we meet George, we meet his executioners, the story's villains, Emily and Rodney Harris, two of the college's long-standing professors. They lure him to his death with uh, the old 
malfunctioning handicap van wheelchair ramp scam. And he's quickly drugged and abducted by the murderous old lovebirds. Now, what's fun about this whole sequence is the way that King plays with language and the craft of story. Here, at the beginning of his own story, he introduces four characters, two of whom fret, and King seems to criticize the futility of this level of fretfulness. First, there's George himself, taking great care to keep the machinery of his 40-year-old body in working condition. A pointless endeavor, King points out, because he's not only immediately murdered, but his death is pointed out ahead of time. Similarly, you have the old poet who sits and wrestled with the beginning of a poem, berating herself for wanting to use the word halo to describe the shimmering glow of the street lamps. I bring this up because these two characters, quickly defined by these hang-ups, are juxtaposed by the bold, confident, violent actions of the Harrises, who function as the antithesis of the previously two established characters. First, George, defined by his obsession with health, is overtaken by the seemingly frail old couple, and the careful attention to diction and syntactical construction exhibited by our elderly poet is bludgeoned by the common speak, all good, all good, and the swearing of the murderers, who cut through the swirling, carefully designed prose like, well, murderers in a Stephen King story. And the final twist of the knife is King's use of the simile of halos to describe the mist around the streetlights as they leave. For them, there's no fretting. There's no hesitation. There's a job to be done. They don't tiptoe through the story. They tear right through it. We switch back to George, waking up in his cell, and King walks us through George's dawning realization of his captivity through one detail at a time. The cell, the port john the soundproof wall, the camera, the uneasiness that comes with how clean the room is. And through it all, King manages to ground us in the humanity when George finds himself unable to pee because he has a hang-up about peeing in public places. The humanity is fleshed out further, not with George, but with Rodney Harris, who re-enters the scene not as some towering murderous figure, but an old man wearing fire truck, fire truck pajama pants. In his earlier works, King made a name for himself by giving us powerful, terrifying characters. Cujo, Christine, Pennywise, George Stark, Randall Flagg. But he evolved his horror, understanding that true horror is in the mundane, in the ordinary, exemplified by Emily ordering George to drink the liver juices while wearing evening face cream. And when Emily provides George with her rationale, uttering a, homophob a homophobic slur in the process, King doubles down on the real-life horror of this character. This isn't an extraterrestrial clown demon feeding on children's fear, or an opportunistic agent of chaos rising to power in the post-apocalyptic landscape. It's not a haunted car, an immortal vampire, or a possessed alcoholic family man. This is a hateful heart born out of prejudice, judgment, disdain, and hiding behind an illusion of enlightened liberalism. College professors can't be bigots, right? From there, we move forward to the not-so-distant past, July of 2021, which is not too long ago, but in some ways feels like a lifetime ago. So let's go back here. As I'm recording this, it's uh, December of 2023, um, and let's talk about 2020, okay? Now, 
Man, I remember recording an episode of the the conclusion of the stand um, as the pandemic was was starting to hit. So I mean, those those early days, again, it's time is so strange because it feels like just yesterday in so many ways, but it 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 feels like a, a million years ago. You know, I mean, nothing like this had had really struck you know, our world in, in the modern age, not, not at any time in, in, in memory, um, that, that where we, we just were, were gripped by, by fear and uncertainty, you know, there was so much fear and, 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 and misinformation or the, the appearance of misinformation. And we didn't know how you're going to get COVID or, you know, we, we didn't know exactly where it had come from, what the symptoms would be, when the vaccine was coming, should we trust the vaccine, who should we trust, who was telling us, you know, you know, you know, I mean, God, getting the, the groceries delivered, wiping all those down, and my wife and I, we did that for a long time, you know, it, it was, it was hard, you know, not seeing, you know, friends or family, um, but I, I, I need to, you know, to be honest about something, and this is coming from a place of, of privilege. So this is this is my experience, not anyone else's. I can only speak what happened to me, and I understand that for some people, um, in, in many ways, COVID was really hard. I, I, I really, I, I understand that. Um, but for me, it was a time in which I felt very grateful for the things that I had in my life, um, that I had someone to spend it with, that I got to slow down, the world shut down, and I had someone to spend it with, um, someone that I, that, that I could trust and, and just be with, and that we were together, and we had a four-year-old who just <laughs> had popped up in this podcast, and she had just turned four. And parents out there, you know that four is such a magical time. And my job required me to, you know, be away for large swaths of time. And I was able to just be home, you know, I was able to be home with her at a time when I needed to be home. And I'm so grateful for that and grateful for the just the ridiculousness of of television at that time and, and how much of it there was you know, when Tiger King hit, that was amazing. You know, I mean, we, we were all just locked in at this time to this absurdity that was occur, uh, occurring. Um, I have a distinct memory of that. I have a distinct memory of watching normal people and falling in love with that show, of being able to read. You know, like I said, the world slowed down and it was a, in terms of weather-wise, it was a beautiful spring and I and a beautiful summer, and I just remember being able to just read, and I dove into a ton of books and comic books and movies and house projects, and it, you know, it it, it you know, we were able to just work around the house, and oh my God, the last Airbender hit Netflix, and I introduced it to to my daughter, and she fell in love with it, and there was all of this coming together, even though we couldn't be together. You know, there was this you know, around Easter, you know, understanding that uh, families wouldn't be together because, you know, we were still all afraid, you know, to share space and air with one another. 
we couldn't do our, our, our typical, you know, Easter egg hunts or whatever. The, the, the town that I lived in put together a, uh, an Easter egg hunt, um, and put it up on the, on the forum on the route that you should take. And it was a scavenger hunt and families participated and it was cool. Stuff like that was cool. You know, the, the ways in which people would get creative to come together, even though we couldn't be together. Um, and that was my perspective. Again, there are people that were struck by tragedy. There were people that were, that, that had loss in their families and they weren't able to be with their families during that time. And I understand that on some level, me talking about the ways in which the world slowed down for me and I was, I was grateful for the time that, that, that I received that it can, it, it might come across as crass. And I understand that, but that's not my intent. I, like I said, I can only speak about my, um, my experience. Um, and I, and I say so understanding that my experience is not the same of under, of other people's experiences. And, and like I prefaced that this is coming from a place of privilege. Um, but this is a life experience that, um, that, you know, like I said, I was able to spend some significant time with my daughter during a time when, um, if I wasn't, if I wasn't given that time, it would go by all too fast. And we had a time of, of magic and play and wonder and love, um, that I'm, I'll, I'll always be grateful for. But, um, if I said anything that, uh, offended anyone or really upset anyone because you're listening and you know, your experience was the antithesis to that, please, I am sorry. You know, um, I really am. That was not the intent, but you know, for me to go back, you know, and talk about this time, you know, I was in a little bubble, but I do acknowledge that the rest of the world, again, there was so much anger. There was so much anger where people were just yelling at each other online and in the news and it was awful. And whether, you know, you were in a bubble of safety or you were uncertain and maybe you didn't have a significant other and you weren't near your family and you couldn't be with your friends and you were alone. You know, for me, my wife and I were introverts. So if the world shut down, we had our, we had each other and that's kind of all we needed. But, you know, other people, they need to be around others. And so times like this, I, I can imagine are, are incredibly hard, um, and then as we progressed from 20 into 2021, it was such a weird year of limbo. Vaccination cards. Remember your vaccination cards? Remember when you had to like bring your vaccination cards to places if you needed to like, you know, once, you know, concerts started to open up again. Do you remember that? And like you had to have your vaccination card, you know, and when you got your booster or whatever, you had to have it on your vaccination card and people are still wearing masks but the masks were starting to slip people kind of weren't doing it and people going back to the old ways you know and then this is where the story is taking place now you know we're, we're going back to the, the 2021 which again was just such a, a weird tail end to the the 2020 experience and what better word to use to bring us back to that time than Zoom, all right? Which is where we find ourselves here, Zoom, during a a, a, uh, a, a Zoom funeral, right? Oh, and, and by the way, talk about Zoom, and this is a horror podcast, right? If you haven't checked out Host on Shutter, that was another experience that, that we had in 2020 that I, 
I mean, this could not have come out at, at a better time. And what an, an inventive, creative horror movie to take place. And it takes place over Zoom. If you haven't seen it, it's great. You know, it's found footage over Zoom, which a seance goes wrong. Um, it's It was the perfect movie to watch in a pandemic. It was awesome. Strongly recommend it. Um, anyway, with, with Zoom, King brings us right back. And I mean, brings us right back. And for any moderate-leaning or conservative fans of King, this section might be frustrating. Because King, a longtime outspoken liberal, does not hold back on his views of this time period. Or rather, the views of people who refused vaccinations and masks. He loads his text with pure disdain. From the non-vaccinated nursery home orderly who refused a booster because of bogus information that he read and believes, to Holly's mother, a Trump-loving, boastful anti-vaxxer, King, through his character, is showing his teeth. But he's also showing how deeply committed to humanity he is. The more pages go by, the more he demonstrates the tangled complications of relationships, especially relationships during this time period, where everyone takes stances, draws battle lines. He never lets Trump or the MAGA crowd, in this case Holly's mom, Charlotte, off the hook, but he does paint a finely detailed port of, portrait of Holly's grief, not just of the death, but of the pre-death that occurred from the growing divide and the guilt that comes from it. After spending some time in Holly's guilt grieving in the lockdown isolation, we get our inciting incident, the call to adventure, if you will, or rather, a call from Penny Doll, whose daughter has gone missing. And King reminds us that this is a very specific moment in time, the time of COVID, with Penny Doll arriving to the meeting with a mask on and her daughter's name written on it, which is a cool image to think about, knowing that the name is a constant reminder to the world during a time of isolation. Holly quickly jumps into the case and literally bears or beats around the bush where the bike goes missing until she discovers evidence that there's been a struggle, pointing towards the likelihood of an abduction. Um, Holly quickly gets a lead when talking with some nearby youths who mentioned that one of their friends had gone missing a few years before. The vignettes of previous abductions begin to dovetail into the main narrative. I want to take a moment and point out the dialogue of the kids. I had noticed this in Under the Dome, but it's jarring when King tries to imbue teenagers with a, uh, a, a sense of cool dialogue. I don't think this was always the case, and there's not much to be said about it. It gets the job done, but we're a long, long way from the level of authenticity that infused the Losers Club and in the pages of It. Regardless, the case continues, and Holly learns she's rich. Good for Holly. We get more insight with the murderous elderly couple who are confirmed to be eating their victims. The vignettes get closer and closer to the present timeline, and King gives us a glimpse of how lockdown has affected the cannibalistic couple. What's so horrifying about them is how unremarkable they are. They are two elitists who are more upset that a December lockdown will affect their Christmas party than they are that there's been a surge of COVID cases on campus. What follows is an amusing example of the creativity that was born out of lockdown, with them hosting it via Zoom with hired helper, helpers dressed as elves delivering food and beverages to local virtual attendees. By this point, Jerome has returned to the story, and we see an extended sequence that humanizes the horror of what's been occurring. So we meet the mother of a child that's gone missing, 
and the slow, dreadful buildup of her collapse. Um, King has done this before, where a character has gone to a house of um, a stranger to us who seems put together, but through the as the pages unfold, you, you see the, 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 like the, the masks start to slip, so to speak. Um, and, and you see what, what's living beneath. So what, what really comes to mind is, is the Mrs. Kirsch moment from It, where Beverly goes to visit Mrs. Kirsch, um, and she seems normal at first, but there, the, these things start to happen where you realize that she's really this, this you know, she's It, you know, she's Pennywise. Um, but it's, it's very similar to this, and it's sad. And this is like a real-life Mrs. Kirsch, where the, the trauma and the grief and the alcoholism, you know, start to, to bubble up and spill out and, and you, you, you know, she can't contain it anymore. And moments like this aren't operating in isolation. King continually reminds us that the story is equally about Holly's grief as much as, as, as it is about her investigation. Returning to your childhood home is just as harrowing as the sequences of abduction. Into the kitchen they go, Emerson already fumbling with the cratches of his briefcase, the two women looking around and taking inventory, as women are apt to do in a house that isn't even their own. Holly is also looking around and hearing her mother everywhere, her eyes stop, her mother's voice, always starting with, how many times have I told you, the sink, how many times have I told you never to put a juice glass in the dishwasher until you rinse it, the refrigerator, how many times have I told you to make sure the door is closed tight, the cupboards. How many times have I told you to never put away more than three plates at a time if you don't want them to chip the stove? How many times have I told you to double check that everything is off before you leave the kitchen? They sit at the table. Emerson gives her the papers he needs her to sign one by one. There's an acknowledgement that she has been informed of the bequest. There's an acknowledgement that she has been provided a copy of Charlotte Ann Gibney's last will and testament. There's the acknowledgement that she has been informed of her mother's various investment assets, which include a very valuable stock portfolio, Tesla and Apple shares being the pick of the litter. Holly signs an employment agreement authorizing David Emerson to represent, represent her in probate court. It's notarized with each document that her big old stamper gadget and Andrea Stark witnesses, witnesses them. With the ritual signing is done, the women offer Holly murmured condolences and make their exit. It recalls a scene in the stand with Franny's mother and the immaculately kept room. Every item had meaning and held weight over the members of the family. And because he is writing a story set in a very particular time, the small personal moments are echoed by larger ripples in the pond. For instance, your mother's china figures in the front hall. You might want to keep those as keepsakes. He sees her face, or perhaps not. But there might be other things. Probably will be. Based on my previous experience in such cases, um, legatees often let things they go later... They, they, they often let... Things they let go later wish they had held onto. You believe that, Holly thinks. You believe it in your very soul because you're a holder honor, and holder honors are never able to understand let-goers. They are tribes that just can't understand each other, sort of like vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, trumpers and never-trumpers. 
Holly continues her investigation, talking to Lakeisha, Bonnie's best friend, and through the course of the conversation, she gets another clue to investigate, the disappearance of Ellen Craslow. In the conversation with Barbara Robinson, King continues to tease that Barbara is working on a top-secret project. This is an intriguing bit of news to see how his project is going to tie into the larger narrative. In the meantime, we continue to get flashbacks of Barbara running parallel to the flashbacks of the abductions. After the first meeting with our cannibal killers, she meets with the old poet who was present for the first abduction that we saw. And King being King, he can't help but take the opportunity to give us insight into the writing process, in this case, writing poetry. Sometimes I write a line, or more than one, once in a while the whole poem, and I think, there, I got that right. And it satisfies. It's like when you have an itch in the middle of your back, and you don't think that you'll be able to reach it, but you can, just barely, and oh man, that sense of relief. The old poet says, destroying the itch brings relief, doesn't it? Yes, Barbara almost shouts it out. Yes, or even like with an infection, a swelling, and you have to... You have to express the pus, Olivia says. She jerks a thumb like a hitchhiker. They don't teach that at college, do they? No, the idea that creative impulse is the way to get rid of poison or a kind of creative defecation. No, they don't teach that. They don't dare. It's too earthy, too common. Tell me a line you wrote that you still like that gave you the feeling of finally uh, uh, relieving the itch. The scene that takes place doesn't fully advance the plot. But it's one of the most captivating scenes that he's written in this book so far. It's charged with power and empowerment. There is some shade thrown from Olivia towards Emily, and she comes out as the Alpha. Furthermore, she gives her blessing of Barbara. And as a fan of this character, I think we all relish in the celebration along with her. Holly continues to investigate, looking into the disappearance of uh, the characters, and discover that after she went missing... A woman came to clean up her things. We are now halfway through the book and Holly is circling closer and closer to the truth. And unfortunately, the murderers are aware of Holly and her investigation into the disappearances. As Holly continues to get closer and closer, King gives us a little insight into her mind. She follows Althea Haverty back into her office. Holly doesn't for a minute believe that Carrie Dressler told any of the oldies about his plans to leave because she doesn't think he had such plans. His plans were changed, perhaps perhaps permanently. But if an old woman cleaned out Ellen's trailer, it's possible that one of these old men knew her, might even be related to her, either by blood or by marriage. Because the Red Bank Avenue predator isn't picking his victims at random, or not entirely at random. He knew Ellen was on her own. He knew Carrie was on his own. He might have known Pete Steinman's mother had a booze problem. He knew Bonnie had recently broken up with her boyfriend. Her father was out of the picture and Bonnie's relationship with her mother was strained. In other words, the predator had information, was picking his targets. Holly is better than she used to be, more grounded, more emotionally stable, less prone to self-blame, but she still suffers from low self-esteem and insecurity. These are character flaws, but the irony is this. They make her a better detective. She's perfectly aware that her uh, suppositions about the case could be entirely wrong, but her gut tells her that they're right. She doesn't want to know if Carrie confided in one of the golden oldies about his plans to leave the city. She wants to know if any of them know or may have been married to a woman who suffers from... Skyatia. Is that how you pronounce it? Skyatica. Unlikely, but as Muskie used to say to Deputy Dog on the old cartoon show, it's possible, it's possible. 
imposter syndrome, what is occurring here, that's debilitating. It really is. Yet, despite these intrusive thoughts, Holly continues to pursue the investigation to the great success, narrowing down the leads to just a remaining few of the Golden Oldies Bowling League. We know it won't take her long to identify the old woman who cleaned out one of the previous victim's apartments to Emily and tie it to Rodney, but King doesn't make it easier for her or for us by reminding the reader that Penny Doll has put Holly's investigation in jeopardy through social media. Though Holly interviews Rodney, she doesn't immediately uncover the truth. And in flashback, we get the final moments of Bonnie Dahl. Um, it's, it's, it's a harrowing sequence. It leads up to the moment of her death. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily gory. It's just the horror of her understanding what's going to come next. That, that's so effective. And after circling the truth for about 100 pages and questioning whether or not Rodney and Emily might be behind it, she finally puts the pieces together and confirms it. At this point, King has established that she's very much on her own. The previous stories involving uh, Holly, especially the Mercedes trilogy and the follow-up to The Outsider, she has been supported um, by her, her, her contacts of, of Bill and Barbara and Jerome. And even in The Outsider, she was part of a temporary quartet. Part of Holly and what makes her so endearing is that she has, she's like one of the Voltron lions. Together with Jerome, Barbara, they, they, they form the defender of the universe. This time she's on her own and she purposely heads into the belly of the beast. She confronts the killers and King has fun with it. On the way out of the office, she thinks of an ad she's seen on TV. Teenagers are running from a guy who looks like Leatherface. One suggests hiding in the attic, another in the basement. The third says, why can't we just get in the running car? And points to it. The fourth, her boyfriend says, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. So they do. The announcer intones, when you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. Holly isn't in a horror movie, though, and she tells herself she's made, she's not making a poor decision. She has her spray, and she needs it. She has Bill gun, Bill's gun. In her deepest heart, she knows better, but she also knows that she needs to see. So, yeah, she's not in a horror movie, but that, that must be fun for King to write because she's in a horror book. Once Holly goes into hunt mode, King cranks it up, and the tension is too much to bear. Leave it to King, where an elderly woman crippled by nerve pain and an old man quickly losing his mental uh, faculties are legitimate dangerous threats to our main character. The immediate confrontation between Holly and Emily is taut, and just when you think that Holly has the upper hand, Rodney comes out of nowhere with a taser. She awakens in the cell with a gloating but far too feeble villain on the other side of the bars. When Emily goes to try to clean up her mess, Holly is able to defeat Rodney first, and a test, in a test of faith in which she breaks them down and manages to slit his throat using the earring that Bonnie has left behind. It all comes together nicely. Um, and I'm not doing justice to the ending because there is a moment where it, it's hard to see our main character at the mercy of these villains. But <clears throat> what King had done so well is he had been charting Rodney's deterioration so well and Emily's... Um, animalistic cunning um how she was the true predator um the the entire time the the brains if you will behind the operation um and so between these two like the unpredictability of what rodney could or could not do and the cunning of of emily despite their age despite their um deterioration 
they still got the upper hand on on Holly, and it becomes very harrowing there in the end. Um, all right, so just some some general thoughts here. It's very clear that King has become very overt on his beliefs in politics. Between Twitter and inserting his opinions through his characters in this book, he's putting it out there. And one thing that should be noted and applauded is that in many ways, Holly represents the conclusion of development that he began back in Mr. Mercedes. The series started with a middle-aged white protagonist, which is pretty common for Stephen King. But over the course of those three books, he used the opportunity to, to shuffle Bill offstage so that a neurodivergent and two young black characters could take the lead. I know that King believes in equity, and in this case, he's putting his mouth where his money is. You know, so, so like I said, 2020 and the pandemic was not that long ago, but it feels like a lifetime. And King's little details of this era bring it right back from the elbow bumps to the debate and anger around vaccines to Zoom life um, to the icebreaker of asking a stranger, which vaccine did you get? And as much as, as this book is about uh, Holly and as much as it is a book about the COVID year, it's also a book about aging and it's a book about death and our acceptance, or lack thereof, of our mortality. Holly struggles with the unresolved issues with her mother and with the acknowledgement that even if she had lived another 10 or 20 years, there still wouldn't be any resolution. Death comes no matter what, and its existence doesn't always allow for people to change in the present. Barbara, on the cusp of her life, when the world introduces itself to her so large and so fresh, with endless possibilities, life, life itself, and purity, with her realizing the fullness of what she's capable of achieving, she has introduced this life. At the same time, she's introduced the fact that it will not last forever. She's mentored by Olivia, and from the looks of it, she has the potential to be the next Olivia. And despite this, King reminds us that one day, death will come for her as well. And then there's the Harrises. They never accepted it. They rejected its premise. They fought against it selfishly at the expense of others. Cannibals, vampires, parasites, diluting themselves into believing that their actions uh, were just in their hypothesis. But they succumb to the frailties of the human body regardless. He refuses to believe his years of research are in any way incorrect. But what if he is excreting neurological fats faster than he can take them in? What if he is quite literally pissing his brains out? The idea is ludicrous, of course, and yet he can no longer remember his zip code. He thinks he takes a nine-size shoe, but can't be positive. Maybe it's an eight? He would have to check the insole to be sure. The other day, he had to struggle to remember his own middle name. Mostly, he's been able to hide this erosion. Emily sees it, of course, but not even Emily has realized the extent of it. Thank God he's not teaching anymore, and thank God he's got Emily to edit and proofread his, proofread his letters to various academic journals he subscribes to. A great deal of the of the time, he's as sharp and as on point as ever. Sometimes he thinks of himself as a passenger in a plane flying over a clear landscape at low altitude. Then the plane goes into a cloud and everything is gray. You hold on to your armrests and wait out the bumps. When questions are asked, you smile and look wise instead of answering. Then the plane flies out of the clouds and the landscape is clear again and all the facts are at your fingertips. He walks in the, his walks in the park are soothing because he, he doesn't have to worry about saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question, like the name of a person you've known for the last 30 years. 
in the park, he doesn't have to be constantly on guard. And even though it's a book about death, there's a sequence at the end that's absolutely beautiful. It stands in contrast to the predatory nature of the cannibals that we have seen throughout the book. It's when Jerome goes to tell Vera the news, the, 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 the confirmation of, of Peter's death. And it brings closure, and it's just lovely. It's just it's people coming together in the acceptance of it, rather than that constant running away and preying on others um, in denial because of it. All right, let's talk about Stephen Kingisms, the, the 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 tips and tricks and traits and tropes of that that we see with with Stephen King. So first of all, is the writer. Um, you know, this is the you know we're, we're first introduced. The first character that we meet is a writer, um, and we're we're shortly followed by a poet, and um, we have Barbara and Jerome, and these are the latest and greatest in a long running trope of Stephen King, including writers in his books. Um, also we have elderly murderers. This is not the first time that we have seen elderly murderers. King has explored this prior with the true knot, um, and with very scary effect, Mr. Munchen in Black House. Um, this is also not the first time a writer has been held captive, um, as we have seen, uh, as we saw with, uh, George Castro. Um, most famously we saw that, uh, in Misery. Um, and then there's the placebo effect that the cannibalism has of, uh, on these characters. Um, it is not providing any restorative um, restoration to their bodies or their minds. This is a placebo effect that they are convincing themselves um, is happening. Um, and very famously in the pages of It, Eddie um, receives uh, uh, acknowledgement of a placebo. All right, speaking of it, we have some Easter eggs. And the first Easter egg is Hi-Ho Silver. In the beginning of the book, the murderous Mr. Harris, Mrs. Harris cries Hi-Yo Silver, um, which invokes Hi-Ho Silver, which is what um, Bill Denbro in the pages of It um, always said. And then we have Carrie. Penny says that Bonnie was a prom queen and nobody dumped a bucket of pig's blood on her either which um, is a reference to Carrie. We have the number 19, which is the number of lines on the poem that Barbara shows Emily, and this is King drawing reference to the haunted number 19, which shows up in his books. And then we have Inside View, and Inside View, as you may know, is the long-running tabloid uh, um, that pops up in his works, including The Dead Zone and The Night Flyer, and uh, now in Holly. All right, everyone. So that's all that I have. I just wanted to, you know, give my, my bare bones thoughts on Holly. It was a good one. I absorbed it. I soaked it all in. Um, I thought that with Emily and Rodney, these are, are two strong candidates to the, uh, um, the world of Stephen King villains. Um, Holly, of course, continues to, to just rock as a protagonist. She's incredibly likable. And I hope we see her again. And I hope to see all of you again, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. Like I said, I, I hope you're putting out another episode before uh, New Year's. So stay tuned to that. Um, all right, everyone. 
May you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Oh, and I've been joined again. First of all, M-O-O-N spells moon. Second of all, have a happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. From us constant readers. Bye. I love reading too. Have a humbly jolly Christmas. And in case you didn't hear, oh, by golly, have a holly jolly.